getting real tired of my voice cracking while I try to record this. It's getting really annoying. Today, I'm going to talk to you about something that's near and dear to everyone's heart. Music. I know, I know. Math and music, these two things are polar opposites, right? A craft of the liberal arts and a field of science have nothing to do with one another. Well, guess what? Nope, that's wrong. Usually, when we start talking about musicians and music itself, we are ingrained to think that no person is both artistic and well-versed in science. And just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to be talking about things from both math and physics here, which the two could be considered one and the same, depending on who you talk to. Anyway, this is all a false perception, as music theory and simply music are very mathematical. Also, I'm a living contradiction of the music and science don't mingle argument. If you know me, you know that I'm both a musician and a mathematician. Plus, a bunch of my friends are the exact same way. On top of that, there's a musician and mathematician who I plan to talk about in a later episode that proves this notion is wrong as well. Her name is Eugenia Chang, in case you're interested in looking into her work. So, how are math and music related at all? Throughout this episode, I'll be looking at music in two separate aspects. The notes, like on a scale or musical staff, and the beats or rhythms. Don't worry though, you don't need to be well-versed in any instrument or theory to understand what I'm saying. To begin, let's take a look at something called the Euclidean algorithm. Euclid, if you remember me mentioning his name in the first episode, is basically a household name to math scholars. He wrote the first well-known mathematics textbook, and it was used as the primary source in pretty much every math classroom for centuries. We call it Euclid's elements. So, as you can imagine, Euclid is credited with introducing many of the most fundamental principles and processes that we take advantage of even today. One such mathematical process is his famous algorithm for finding the greatest common divisor of two integers. Or, in other words, the largest whole number that divides both of two other whole numbers. Although you could end up with the greatest common divisor, or GCD for short, as one of those other two numbers. Like, when we look at 8 and 4, the GCD in that case is 4. But what does this mean to us? How can an algorithm, or if you're unfamiliar with the term, a continuous repeating operation that takes your input and turns out some output on its own, be applied to something more concrete or physical than our rather theoretical concept of numbers? Have you ever played with a string or rubber band's length and plucked it as if you were playing your own weird little guitar? 
Have you noticed how the sound that it makes gets higher or lower depending on what length the string is? This change in the instrument's pitch relies heavily on tension and density, but it also has to do with the length of your string. I got reminded of this concept in one of my high school math classes when one day we watched an older Disney film where Donald Duck travels through mathematical land and gets to see some really helpful visualizations of mathematical concepts for about an hour or so. So in this movie, the narrator explains how stretching or shrinking a string accordingly to different ratios in turn changes the note that it plays. He contends that the discovery of this principle can be accredited to the Pythagoreans, which were an ancient community that was appropriately named after their dedicated following of yet another notorious name from math history, Pythagoras. But from what I've learned so far, the clearest evidence of ancient scholars' understanding of the relationship between string length and sound comes in Euclid's famous elements. The text as a whole is organized into 13 different books, and it's within Propositions 1 and 2 of Book 12 that we can see a clear understanding of how you can apply Euclid's algorithm to a string's length in order to change the pitch it plays when you pluck it. Of course, the tension and density of the strings you're manipulating have to stay the same in order for this to work, so don't try to ask me if this is how it works, how come guitar strings look like they're basically the same length? That's all a lot of ground that I'm just not concerned with right now. No. Right now, I want to tell you about something that Conrad Hinfling, a German mathematician, musician, and lawyer, wrote to his colleague Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz about at some point in the 17th century. You see, up until this time, the applications of Euclid's algorithm in Western music had yet to be significantly documented, but this Hinfling guy that I mentioned exchanged letters with Leibniz in which he used the Euclidean algorithm to justify his findings on music theory and the ways that instruments are tuned. Before I go any further, let's take a minute to go over some musical jargon that's relevant to all this. In math lessons, we say that an interval is basically the space between two numbers. But in music theory, an interval refers to the distance between two notes. And our modern chromatic scale, made up of 12 notes, ranges from the letter A to the letter G. Our designation of C, C-sharp, D, D-sharp, and so on represents the specific frequencies that a sound's waves vibrate at. Well, no matter what note our manipulated string starts at, if I were to cut it in half, the pitch of the string would rise by an octave. So as you could probably guess, if I were to magically be able to double a string's length, its pitch would go down an octave. If I were to cut one third of the string off, so leaving two-thirds of the original length of the string intact, I would be making the pitch go up by a fifth. Now, this may be getting a little confusing, because keep in mind that this term, fifth, in regard to musical notes, has nothing to do with the fraction one over five. A mathematician by the name of Benjamin Wardhall created a figure that helps clear up this concept. 
I'll include it in the episode notes, but if you're just listening to me right now, I want you to imagine musical notes on a musical staff. You know, one of those sets of five lines on sheet music that tell musicians what and when to play. We start on the note C, and we play the next seven notes above it. D, E, F, G, A, B, and then the next C. In total, we played eight notes, so we can say that we've raised C by an octave. If we play the five notes C, D, E, F, and then G, the interval we've played is a fifth. So, snipping and stretching string lengths like this, and making musical intervals like this, is creating ratios that we're going to look more into. For example, an octave makes a ratio of 2 to 1, whereas a fifth corresponds to the ratio 3 to 2. Don't be intimidated by all this talk of numbers and ratios, though, because the most important thing that I want you to get out of this is how the ancient Greeks noticed that certain string lengths, quote-unquote, sounded good when they played together, and that these ideal intervals had exact simple ratios, like 2 to 1, 3 to 2, and 4 to 3. That idea of things sounding good to our ears is called consonance. When consonant notes are played together, and I learned this from watching the TED-Ed video linked to Natalia St. Clair, their frequencies form a pretty and clean geometric series. On top of that, we know that simple ratios, i.e. 2 to 1, 3 to 2, 4 to 3, and so on, between frequencies correlates to consonants. The opposite of consonants is dissonance. So notes that are dissonant to one another aren't so easy on our ears. The ratios between dissonant notes are much more complex, and their sound waves rarely sync up if we're looking at them as if they're graphed on some plane. So where does the Euclidean algorithm come into play? When composing music, or when making or tuning an instrument, musicians like to examine the sizes of intervals and, in turn, find out how many times certain intervals will fit into another. Nowadays, these amounts can be calculated easily through the use of logarithms, but even by the end of the 1600s, only a select few mathematicians knew how to manage logarithms. Thus, musicians and mathematicians used Euclid's algorithm to determine how many x intervals fit into a y interval. In many cases, where we try to find out how many intervals fit into another, we have to eventually throw in the towel and decide on a good time to stop the algorithm before it keeps getting out of hand. By that, I mean to say that there are ratios that we can plug into Euclid's algorithm that may never truly end in a one-to-one ratio. This is one of the things that led to early instrument builders and musicians deciding on our contemporary 12-note chromatic scale. Without going into all of the arithmetic and of the development process, let's just look at how they opted to say that two semitones fit into a tone. Don't worry if you're not sure what exactly these words mean. The important thing to take away from this is that we ended up deciding that an octave is made up of 12 semitones. Semitones. Whatever. Hence why, when you look at a traditional piano keyboard and you see the repeating pattern of the keys, 
you'll be able to see that instruments like this one have 12 equal semitones. And by the way, this concept is known as equal or even temperament. I have an image from Michael Firstner that helps give you a visual perspective of what I'm talking about here, and I'll include it in the episode notes, of course. Anyway, could you imagine seeing a piano with 40 or 52 or 305 and so on keys between each C? I mean, this seems strange now, but in fact there were several people in the 16th and 17th centuries that had designed instruments whose octaves, as I'll put it, were separated by a strange number of notes. In fact, as the scholar Benjamin Wardhow puts it, the division of the octave into 53 was the official musical tuning in China in the 18th century. Besides the Euclidean algorithm, we can find other mathematical applications in the concept of notes in music. One thing that I love learning about is the geometric connections we can make in this regard. If you watch this certain YouTube video from the Harmonicon Project, you'll get to see the dodecagon that we can form by making the corner points represent the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. When you play a number of different notes at the same time and form a chord, we could examine even further the shapes that we can make inside the dodecagon. What I mean to say is, Imagine that we have a string of yarn, and we figure out all the ways that we can connect one point to another within our shape. If we were to draw each one of these lines, and there's a lot of them, you guys, we would end up with something called a dodecagram. Then, if we were to try and visualize any size of chord that's in our 12-note system, we would find shapes ranging from a simple line segment to well, well, dodecagon. I just think it's really cool that we can visually represent harmonic patterns, that we can do this in a way that relates to the simple geometry lessons that we start with when we first learn our shapes. Now, I could get into the concept of symmetry in music, because this is yet another concept attributed to mathematics that I love, but I want to wrap this episode up by looking back at the Euclidean algorithm and its involvement in melodies. So before I move on, I am going to provide a link to a short lecture from some wonderful people at the Santa Fe Symphony and the Santa Fe Institute in my notes for this episode. It's a short eight-minute exploration of the ways mathematical symmetry appears in music. They specifically look into one of the fugues that Bach wrote and how a certain pattern of notes appears throughout the piece, coming from several different instruments of the symphony. But... Like I said, let's rewind a little and look at Euclid's algorithm again. Up until now, I've been telling you about some math-music connections that have been studied since the time of Euclid, which was before Common Era, by the way. Surely, humankind had already finished finding ways that math and music connect to one another long before the 21st century, right? I'm sure that by now you already know what I'm going to say. That line of thinking is quite far from the truth. A Canadian mathematician and professor has, relatively recently, broken ground with the relationship between the Euclidean algorithm and rhythm in music. So, I'm no longer talking about the specific tones of a piece. Rather, we're going to be looking into the aspect of music that deals with when and where instruments play a note or rest. 
In 2004, a computer science professor at McGill University of Montreal unearthed yet another correlation between the Euclidean algorithm and music. This pioneer is named Gottfried Toussaint, or Toussaint, and he published the official results of his findings in a paper entitled The Euclidean Algorithm Generates Traditional Musical Rhythms in 2005. Through his use of the algorithm, he coined the term Euclidean rhythms. The ultimate premise of a Euclidean rhythm is that it hits, so moments of sound, are distributed into a string of beats as equidistant from one another as possible. For example, if we were to use the Euclidean algorithm to find the greatest common divisor of 2 and 8, we would only run the algorithm once, because 2 very easily divides 8, and the Euclidean rhythm, denoted as E parentheses 2 comma 8 end parentheses, would be 2 hits evenly separated by 3 beats of rest each. So, what if we have to carry out the algorithm in more than one step? What if the greatest common divisor of two integers is one? An example of this situation lies in the Euclidean rhythm E38. Here, there would be two hits, each followed by two beats of rest, plus one hit that's followed by one beat of rest. I'll include a visual representation that I've made of all this in the episode notes, of course, alongside a different one from a research paper by Eric Demain. Hopefully that will clear up any confusion that resulted from my attempt at explaining this to you. It's a bit difficult when you try to just teach this over a podcast. Anyway, Euclidean rhythms can be found in traditional music from around the world. Our example, E38, is called the Tresillo in Cuba. Just as well, the rhythm E58 is the Cuban Cinquillo. I'm so sorry that I'm saying that wrong, I already know I am. There are a plethora of other Euclidean rhythms that can be found in other pieces of traditional world music. Gottfried Toussaint's famous paper that I mentioned lists 23 Euclidean rhythms that appear in musical pieces from different world cultures, and although most of these are found in African tribal music, they also appear in traditional rhythms from places like Brazil, Persia, and Spain. Also, Examples of Euclidean rhythms did not stop being produced or reused in Old World music. E516 has at least 16 different forms. One of them is referred to as the Bo Diddley beat to rock musicians. By now, I think you're probably understanding the gist of what I'm getting at. Mathematicians as far back as Euclid have noted connections between melodic structures and the science of logic, reason, and computation. There are too many instances where we judge artists studying music theory and immediately think they're probably not good at math. Maybe even many of these students think to themselves, man, I really can't do math. This is extremely misfortunate and most certainly not true. It upsets me to think that there are people even considering these inaccuracies today, because almost every great musician has at least a subconscious but deep understanding of mathematical concepts, which they use every time they commit to their craft. Like I always say, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Spaghetti Pie and that it's 
piqued your interest enough to go look at some of the resources I really wanted to share with you all. Of course, I'm going to be including everything in the episode notes, which can be found at spaghellipie.wordpress.com. I want to thank you for being patient with me while I was getting this episode together. It's proving more and more difficult to be getting these episodes done by the dates I want them to be published by, hence my irregularity with that. But I want you all to know that I feel incredibly lucky to have an audience that wants to hear what I have to say. It always makes my day when I see any of you sharing or just commenting on my content, and it makes me want to do better with each episode. If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach me by email at spaghellipie at gmail.com. And I hope that you come back again for the fourth installment of this. Hopefully by then I'll have the podcast up and running on Apple Music and Spotify. But the approval process for that is taking a lot longer than I thought it would. So sorry about that. The theme song for Spaghetti Pie is Pluck It Up by Dan Heenig. Special thanks to my advisor, Dr. Patrick Shipman, and my sister, Alex, for creating the cover art for this podcast. Mm-hmm.